You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness, and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness, and physiology right now. In this episode, Dr. Nader discusses what pure consciousness is and how it relates to pure love. On the theoretical level, I think what Marsh's contribution is uh, most profound in bringing forth the understanding of consciousness. On the practical level is all the results that the development of consciousness bring in terms of the development of human potential, improvement of health, behavior, and even social transformations in a very simple, systematic, scientific way that doesn't require drugs that one owns oneself and does by oneself at home. So you don't really need a constant follow-up with a teacher. And he has brought this uh, technology of awareness, technology of consciousness, and really brought to light the value of consciousness in terms of the physical reality of life. Mind and body were considered two different things, you know, Descartes and from that philosopher's time. And how do they meet? How do they interact? And science is trying to understand that. And now we realize more and more that mind and body are a continuum where what happens in the body is reflected in the mind. And also what happens in the mind has an effect on the physiology, not just an effect. You know, we've heard of psychosomatic diseases. You have a problem of anxiety or fear. And then you find that your stomach aches, that you have an ulcer, or you get problems of hypertension, etc. And so it's like, what is the effect of the mind on the body? But now we know that actually all that happens in the mind is reflected physiologically and vice versa. So this profound unifying value of mind and body is on the theoretical level very important. But most importantly, on the utilitarian pragmatic level, it actually helps to transform life from pain, suffering, into a situation of wholeness and fullness of life in a natural, easy way. If you ask scientists today what is consciousness, there is no one who can fully answer that. You know, there are interests in consciousness has started in 40, 50 years ago. But it became a serious quest in modern scientific research only like 20 years ago or so. And uh, the problem that we encounter is that there is a dissociation between what we call the mechanisms that lead to perception and how this perception actually is projected into something which we call abstract, such as feeling, such as uh, even the appreciation of redness, for example. You know, you can think exactly how the light is uh, reflected on a flower, how it goes through the retina to the eyes, then goes through certain neurons, goes to the occipital lobe, 
then it gets moving to different areas of the brain and creates a reaction there. But how does the individual say, I am happy, I like it, it's, I seen read something, it's red. That is what scientists have called qualia, Q-U-A-L-I-A. And that is uh, the experience, the experiencer. So most people feel that maybe one day we will discover all of these mechanisms of what happens between an experience and the awareness of the experience. And they call this the easy problem. It's the easy problem because it is potentially one day understandable. The easy problem is like, uh, if you compare it to the universe, is like knowing exactly where every planet and every star is in the universe and how they interact with each other and how they are going to be in the future in, in so many thousands or millions of years. That's a huge problem. It's not like the easy problem is already solved. We know a lot about the brain today, but not enough to pretend that we know a lot. And still, we know that we are going to one day to be able to understand all these mechanisms of perception, of cognition, how we hear a sound, how we see a flower. But we have no clue, or science has no clue today, about consciousness itself. Is it a screen on which all of these things happen? Where is that screen? The understanding from the ancient times, from Maharshi's uh, tradition, and also from articles that I have written, and even in mathematics uh, about consciousness, is actually when you look at it very profoundly, you realize there is one thing you can be 100% sure about. We can ask ourselves. Can we be sure that, uh, that the flower is made by molecules? Yes, in some level, because science says that. But what are the molecules made of? They're made out of atoms. What are the atoms made of? Elementary particles. What are the elementary particles made of? They're made of, of waves. That's what the science, the physics tells us. Vibrations in the fields, different fields electromagnetic field, a field of gravitational forces, of strong force, weak force. And then they say, what are these made of? Where do they come from? And then scientists have discovered that actually they come from a more unified level of fields, ultimately being a field of pure existence, which scientists call the unified field of all the laws of nature. So. When we look at the flower or we look at anything or any event, we are looking at it from a certain angle, certain point of view, a certain perception. We are not sure, for example, that the bat sees the flower the same way as we do, because bats, for example, don't have eyes. They have, they have kind of eyes, but they don't use the electromagnetic field. They use sound waves, so they project like a radar the sound goes to the object and gets reflected, goes back to their detectors, and then they're feeling the sound, the vibration that things are there. What is the essence of things? What is real? And in fact, this is a problem in philosophy and science for hundreds of years, even thousands of years. Ultimately coming to the conclusion that we cannot really know things in their essence. We can know things as they appear to us. 
But there is one thing we can, as human beings, be absolutely sure about, and that is we are conscious. We are aware. We are conscious. We know we are conscious. We can be sure of our own awareness because everything projects on our awareness. But the body changes, the physiology changes, the environment changes. And, you know, for the existentialists and all the philosophers, it's a field of change, you know, and some of them call it a field of constant death <laughs> to dramatize things. So the relative is a field of change, change, constantly changing. Even you look at a stone, it looks the same, but its, it's molecules are changing, its atoms are changing all the time, and its electrons are moving. So it's never the same, really. It's always a field of change. There is one area which is always there with us as humans, is consciousness. So in trying to resolve the problem of what is consciousness, scientists attempt to explain it on the level of what happens in the brain and how can we understand from the physical level the awareness coming on the mental level. And they are not finding any clues. So if you want to answer what is consciousness in science, today there is not even a hint, not even an idea. You know, people try to say it's quantum mechanics, it's something, but it's all theories, and there is not one idea of what is consciousness. On the other hand, what is the physical world that we live in? What is it made of? And if you go deeper and deeper into it, as we went from the molecules to the atoms to the particles to the fields, we find that modern physics is telling us that there is a field which is called the unified field of all the laws of nature, which itself is a field that is beyond time and space, that is infinite, that is unbounded, that has all the laws of nature, that actually vibrates and appears to be the different fields that become elementary particles coming together, becoming atoms, atoms coming together, molecules, molecules coming together, becoming biology, cells, and then the biology creating the brain, and then some mental processes. So the theory is, it's a theory, but you know that is the theory I'm proposing and that Marshi has proposed, is that actually this unified field is a field of consciousness. So in fact, the primary reality of life is a field of pure being, which is consciousness. And then how consciousness appears as matter is a different issue, but mathematically you can actually get to it and show that it is possible. So going from something which is absolutely unmanageable, how does consciousness come from matter, we are now having a different problem. How does matter come from consciousness? It seems as hard and as difficult, but actually it turns out to be much more easy to resolve and that's where uh, you know, my mathematical papers have been written on that. See, we, we start with the uh, assumption, let's say, which is more than an assumption, that there are laws in nature. You know, if you drop a pen, it falls in a certain way on the ground. It has a certain trajectory which you can analyze and get exactly how it happens. Why? because there is a law of gravity and of relationship of forces and mass. 
you can calculate these and the pen will fall exactly as you expect it. Now, it's the same in electromagnetism and all aspects of life. So either life is a chaotic reality or there is order in creation. So the fact that there is evolution and there is law, law of electromagnetism, law of capillarity, you can say all kinds of laws of nature. These are what we call laws of nature. It's not like the law of the jungle. You know, it's not nature meaning going to the jungle. But nature means the entire field of life, the entire field of existence has laws within it. Now, if there are laws, it means that your action is going to have a reaction. So the principle, as you sow, so shall you reap, is a real thing because if you plant a, an apple tree, an apple seed, you're going to get apples when the tree grows. You're not going to get mangoes or bananas. So there is an order in creation. This order, humans, we assume that stops on the physical level. In fact, it doesn't stop only on the physical level. It stops on the mental level, it stops on the social level, it stops also on the behavioral mm. level, or it doesn't stop at all, it's everywhere. So in order to live a life which is most fulfilling, we want to be able to live in accordance with the laws of nature because there is a force of evolution. And if we are able to use that force of evolution to our advantage, then we are happy we don't create friction or problems. Otherwise, if you act against the laws of nature, if you like, then you are going to have more difficulty in achieving your goal. The question is, how do we know how to act in accordance with the laws of nature? There are so many laws, and science is trying to discover them, but it's really unfathomable. Even if you know them intellectually, how do you know under this circumstance to act in accordance with this? There are so many variables that are involved. This brings us to this knowing the self. And knowing the self, therefore, is based on really what we just said before, and that there is a field of life, which is the unified field of the laws of nature, that contains all the laws. If you are in tune with that, then you are able to automatically and spontaneously act in accordance with the laws of nature. It so happens in the Vedic tradition, in Maharshi's teaching, and in the experience that we have, that that is our self. The unified field is not something that is outside. Because we said this field creates the other fields, creates the atoms, the molecules, the human biology, and the whole universe. Therefore, when you ask what is the table, it's ultimately the unified field. But we are also that unified field. We are also that unified field. But our awareness is limited due to different stresses and problems to a perception of who we are on a surface level. I am this person who has this name, who has this profession, who has this problem, who has these capacities, who has these limitations, these shortcomings, these qualities, etc. And we put ourselves in this box, the box of my small self. And we assume we are that thing. And once we have assumed that, we act in the context of that. What transcendental meditation does is allow us to go within and dive 
deeper and deeper to actually reach the true self, which is the unified field, which we are saying is a field of consciousness. That's how we tie our original kind of thought about consciousness with the self, with the unified field. So going back to the self is going back to the self of everything and the self of everyone. Why? It's the unified field. It's the same one self. What do you get by going through that? These are the practical benefits. But before we get to the specifics, at least what you get is to know yourself. You know, this wisdom, know thyself, has been there since time immemorial, since the Greeks and before. Everybody says, know thyself, go back to yourself, anchor yourself in yourself, and then you can do more in the outside. So by knowing the self and knowing that the self is more than just the small box in which we have put ourselves, that it's an infinite source of creativity and intelligence, that is the source of the ability to act spontaneously in accordance with the laws of nature because we are established in that reality. That gives us more clarity, more intelligence, because that is the source of all clarity and all intelligence. And therefore, it's not something that we manipulate on the intellectual level. Because you can think about the unified field all day long. It gets you tired, you know, <laughs> because of the exercise of trying to understand the physics of it. It doesn't help you, except maybe a little theoretically. What is important is this unified field, which is, in a way, a theoretical reality, but physics has talked about it, is accessible. There is a technique to access it. There is a system to get it. And the system is very simple. Just let your mind settle, settle, settle down, settle down, settle more down until it reaches that state of pure self, pure being, pure silence, which is the unified field. And how to do it? There is a technology of the mind. So knowing the self is the most important thing one can do even on a theoretical level, to achieve fullness of life, wholeness of life, happiness in life. The interesting thing about us human beings is that we have, we can say a product of evolution, we can look at it in different ways, or of creation, or whatever, doesn't, the way we came to be what we are doesn't matter, we are what we are right now. And uh, is that we have this ability to be conscious and be conscious that we are conscious also. So the brain is a machine, you know, that actually reflects the structure of natural law in such a way that it allows us to experience these values, these higher states of consciousness. And how does it do it? It does it by having many processors, if you like. You can think of the brain as multiple processors. You have a place where you have the analysis of hearing, a place for seeing, you have a place for feeling, you have a place for anticipation of the future, you have a place for memory, you have a combination of places for memory, actually, and then appreciation of distance, appreciation of depth, you know, all of these things. And you have a place where it recollects things from the past, puts them into the knowledge that you have learned so that to check what am I going to do in the future, such as in the frontal lobes. You have a fact-checking side, which is more the right frontal area. 
You have an interpreter side, which is sitting there interpreting things so it makes sense for us, you know, what we are doing, because sometimes we do things. And then actually the brain afterwards starts interpreting why we did it. There is research like this very interesting, which shows that we decide to do something and we think we have consciously decided it, but the body had already made the decision. And then there is in the brain some place, which is called the interpreter, that comes along later and interprets why you have chosen something. And sometimes these interpretations have nothing to do with the actual reality of why you did it. But it doesn't matter. We have all of these processors. Imagine you have thousands of computers. That's what the brain is like, with chips, if you like, but they are interconnected. Now, when, you, when one is stressed, when one is tired, when one is facing potential danger, there are mechanisms in the brain that shut down other things so that you defend yourself, fight or flight response. And that also activates the body because the body has to act. The body has to be ready to fight or has to be ready to run away. And there, these mechanisms, therefore, are intimately interconnected. Now, under stressful situation, there are things that happen. But if one has accumulated stress throughout life, you are actually blocking the interconnection between these different parts of the brain. Because stress, as we said, is something we experience on the mind. I feel stressed, I feel tired. But actually, stress is a physical thing because mind and body are intimately related. They're just really the same. And stress is a physical thing. There are some molecules in the brain. There are some circuits in the electricity of the brain that have been transformed. And that's what we call stress. So stress actually has a physical imprint in the nervous system that is experienced mentally as fear, fatigue, depression, etc. But there is something there. For every actually thought we have, there are some molecules and some electrical activities that happen in the brain. If we are stressed and we've accumulated stress throughout life, our brain is not functioning in its full potential because these different processors are not well connected or they are rusty, if you like, trying to take an example. So you are able to analyze things and work on things from a limited perspective, from a small perspective, rather than what we call use your full potential. Okay, so how to do it, what to do. And this is where we call upon a mechanism which is very powerful in the human body and the physical brain. And that is the ability of the body to repair itself. You don't have to do something really from the outside that much. The body has a mechanism to repair itself. For example, it has the immune system. If you have a foreign body that comes in, let's say a thorn goes into the finger and you leave it there, the immune system is going to put a battle there and remove it from you. If you have a bacteria that comes or a virus, you know, the, the body attacks it and removes it. If you are tired, what do you do? You don't try to pull the tiredness out of your muscles, somehow pushing them away. What you do is you rest. When you rest, the body automatically repairs itself. It's part of the system. That's how it's built. But you have to really give it a chance. If you're running and you don't rest, if you're tired and you don't sleep, you are exhausting your system. People who don't sleep 
ultimately they can die if they don't have enough experience of deep sleep and dreaming, actually die. You can die from not sleeping. Uh, you can die from exhaustion also. So the body needs rest in order to remove tiredness and fatigue. In transcendental meditation, the rest that is gained because the mind settles down, becomes more and more quiet, more and more quiet, is much deeper than the deepest sleep. That is also proven and studied scientifically on all kinds of parameters of the physiology. So when you're giving the body this deep rest, it's going to use its mechanisms of repair automatically. And this time, it's going to repair not just the superficial fatigue of the muscles, but much deeper fatigue, which we are calling stress. So it's going to readjust the system and clean up the system. We have to give it a chance. That's why regular practice of meditation is very important because that is how you rejuvenate yourself. See, when we go through a day, we don't have only physical fatigue. We have mental fatigue because you know, of strain on the mind or deceptions, but also if we have excitation of some positive things sometimes, they can leave a mark on the system. So to reboot the system, you know, it's like you have a computer and if you overload it with different softwares and programs, suddenly it goes nuts. And you know, what can you do? Most of us know, you just turn it off. You turn the computer off, it reboots and reorganizes itself because there were so many conflicts of programs and software and all of that. That happens to us humans. Do we not need to reboot a little bit? So happily we can reboot through sleep, which is wonderful. Um, but there is a different and deeper way to reorganize ourselves, and that is what transcendental meditation gives us. Once you have cleaned up the system, then this frontal lobe, this occipital lobe, parietal lobe, this part of it, this lower part, upper part, subolicular part, this part, they kind of are activated and awakened and cleaned up. It's a time of cleaning up. And now they talk to each other more. And when they talk to each other more, you have much more processing power. Now, if you have a problem, automatically the brain processes it. You don't even have to be thinking too much about it intellectually. But automatically you process it in a positive way, in a clear way, in an evolutionary way. And that's how it gives you more happiness, because happiness is also to grow, to progress, to achieve one's goals. So established in the self means having a brain that is clear from interferences because we are saying these interferences are foreign to us. So they're not us. That is why the, the relationship between the self and the non-self. The non-self is stress, is tiredness, is fatigue, is rustiness in the brain, is all of this. These are the stresses. They are not us. So going back to the self actually means going back to the normal, natural functioning of the system that we have, and therefore the ability to achieve more, to be more, and to be more creative, and be able to progress in life in a direction of fulfillment. See, whatever we experience in our awareness has a reason or a meaning. You know, if we experience pain or we experience anxiety or we experience these things. These are different 
indications of where our physiology is and our mind. It's both mind and body. These are two things. It's like, you know, if you are on a, on a ship or a, or a plane or something, and there are all these uh, connections from different parts of the ship, and they come to the board, on the board of the captain, and he or she sees a light goes and says, oh, there is a problem in the engine. Oh, there is, there is uh, something went wrong in this room. Uh, this light shows there is something in the ventilation system. Okay, these are like a board which tells you what is happening. You can think of the mind as being like this, really. Now, we don't know it always. We lose, when we lose contact with ourselves, with our body, with our feelings, with, and when the whole system is all mixed up, you cannot interpret properly what is happening. But the body is always trying to tell us something. Pain, for example, is not a bad thing it, as such. Why did nature create pain? It's just to tell us something wrong in the body. Otherwise, you'll ignore it. You f you, if you ignore it, then the disease comes and makes you much worse. So we don't want pain. But when pain comes, it means something has to be attended to, and something has to be taken care of. So all of these emotions, for example, satisfaction. I'm satisfied uh, that you know, I've eaten something. It's good. I don't, I'm not feeling hungry anymore. There is a feeling of satisfaction. If we are you know, wise and content and we feel, OK, um, I'm happy with what I have. I am content. You convince yourself that you are content. But pleasure, you, know, you, you go through some experience, you eat some amazing cake, or you know, have a nice time with somewhere, something, and you feel pleasure. You say, it's pleasure. Now, are these happiness? They're not really. Happiness is a feeling of wholeness that comes from the sense of well-being, which might include some satisfaction, some contentment, some uh, pleasure, etc. But they don't define happiness. Happiness is a feeling of progress in life, of past, present, and future being in tune with your own evolution. So when do we feel happiness? We feel happiness when we are in tune with ourselves, with our aims in life, with our goals, and we achieve them. So it's more than just contentment, pleasure, or, or satisfaction. And how does this happen? The system is there, again, like a light to tell you, you're doing the right thing. You're on the right path. So when we experience happiness is when we experience that we are moving forward in life. We are growing. We are achieving. And we are progressing. At the same time, when we are healthy and we don't have a disease on the physical level, etc., or we don't have a worry from our people we love or our environment. So that takes happiness to a holistic value, which includes the individual physiology as well as the future and the past, and as well as the environment, the people we love, the environment in which we live. Sometime, if you feel you know something is happening in your society and people are not happy, there is a there is a war, or there is a drama, or there is an accident, or there is crime. Even your feeling in your home, yourself, everything is fine with you. But somehow you feel you're not so happy. So happiness is that wholeness. And this program, actually, of Maharshi's meditation is to create happiness. 
And the reason happiness comes on our screen, <laughs> it blinks now, oh, we are happy, so all the engines are working well, all the systems are working well, is a mechanism by nature to tell us we are on the right path. And also because the ultimate nature of life is bliss. We talked about the unified field as being a field of consciousness, pure consciousness. And the ancient knowledge, and the way Marcy brought it and the way we understand it, is that that field of consciousness, because it is fullness, because it is unboundedness, because it is all creativity, has a quality on the feeling level. And that quality is that of bliss, of happiness. So when you are in tune with yourself, when you know yourself, then you act in accordance with the laws of nature, then you achieve more, and you experience happiness as a result. Thank you very much, Professor Doctor. <laughs> if it's, um, are there any, one or two, any questions? Yes, Elliot. <laughs> love is a powerful force of life. Well, you actually talk about we it a didn't, lot. We <laughs> didn't ask, uh, you know. So what is the relationship between love and consciousness? See, love is a power of life. It's a force of unification. It puts things together. So when there is different things, how to tie them together, how to put them together, uh, we can say this is love. You know, so love is not just a personal love to fall in love with somebody, which is also, of course, beautiful and true, uh, but it's also the love for one's friends, the love for one's family, the love for the universe, the love for God, the love for whatever one is living in and experiencing. And what does love do? It binds the things that can appear impossible to put together on the surface or difficult to put together. Do you think it's possible to find It's actually the other way around, is that when you get into deeper consciousness, you are able to love more. Because yeah. to have love is to be able to appreciate things also. You have to appreciate something in order to accept to be connected to it by a, a close bond. To appreciate something on the outside, you have to be yourself already clear and have you know, inner strength and stability and clarity in your thinking. So if you are stressed or tense and fatigued or worried about things, the potential to experience or express love is very limited. If you are much more rested and calm inside and strong within, then your ability to give and to bind and to connect is much deeper and much more. So it is by developing actually consciousness that love is able to express itself in its fullness. And you know, we, we talked, we didn't use the term love, but when we find love as the unifying power of life, and we say there is a unified field which is unifying everything in the universe, 
we can say that that is the field of pure love. We can call it pure consciousness, but you can call it also pure love because it unifies all the extreme ends of the universe. And that's the beauty of that uh, reality. Thank you. Uh, yes. Yes. First, I want to congratulate you on the presentation. It was fantastic. But also, talking about consciousness, you never also mentioned the word spirituality. And you mentioned that in consciousness, the scientists really are limited because they don't know what really consciousness is. Why, doesn't the why don't the scientists explore spirituality? I'm really delighted that these questions come up. The thing is, when Marishi started the movement, <laughs> uh, he called it the spiritual regeneration movement. That was when he was in India. And there was really the idea of spirituality and spiritual. Unfortunately, it got misinterpreted as being maybe religion, maybe a belief system, maybe a way of life. And therefore, people were afraid, what is this? But what he meant is, what is really the maximum spirituality is to reach beyond the physical to something more transcendental. You know, we can call the mind as being more spiritual than the body. We can call the feeling of self, the feeling of abstract, being, more abstract. more abstract than the feeling of the outside. So we have, as scientists, because of the definition of spiritual is so misunderstood, and sometimes also the definition of what love is and what loving means is so open to so much interpretation, we prefer to remain on the systematic scientific level, although you know, people who practice transcendental meditation, their spirituality improves. Those who are believers, they have their religion, they understand it more, whatever field of religion they come from. So it's a denominator. It's like even Marshi went to the point where to say, uh, if religion and spirituality is related to inviting God to your house, Transcendental meditation is the broom and the cleaning system. So you clean the house so that God comes to a clean house. You know, that has that level uh, where that is also spirituality, if you like. So it's really a definition, a term of definition. We, we do stay away from our side uh, because, uh, unfortunately, we would be labeled uh, unfairly as not being scientific because the field of spirituality is still seen outside of the realm of science. I would like to first um, start by thanking Dr. Nader for coming here. He lives in Paris and uh, came over here for some um, other work, but really one main reason was to come and be with us here this evening and answer some of these questions and really take, I, I think what I love about it is taking this whole realm of you know, uh, working with under-resourced under populations to this highest value of cosmic consciousness and unboundedness and seeing that there's a continuum, seeing that there's a practical application for anyone and everyone. 
Maharshi was one time asked by a reporter you know, um, about what he does. He said, he said, it's hard to talk to a person about peace when they have a migraine headache. And so sometimes difficult to talk about some of these bigger issues when we have these pressing problems. And yet it's a wonderful thing to realize, because we're human, because this accesses a common unified field to all of us, that everything is influenced. And so all values of life are influenced, are, are awakened. And um, Dr. Nader articulates with a language that I could only dream of, you know, and a, com and a command of all these different sciences and, you know, psychology and psychiatry and everything in rare in the world. So we're very, 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 very grateful that you came Thank here Thank you today. very much. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.